This job is easy when the product is so spectacular. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive and Parity and Element. Here, you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 91, and today's guest is Margaret Moraski. Margaret is the CEO at Levenger, living in South Florida, and how that must be so nice at this time of the year. As an experienced senior leader within the retail industry, Margaret has driven sustained growth through the ideation, development, and execution of innovative and transformative strategies in customer experience, digital, and multi-channel marketing and business intelligence. She spent time in retail training programs in the catalog world and in digital. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Margaret Moraski. Margaret is the Chief Executive Officer for Levenger, a specialty retailer that sells luxury pens, fine stationery, professional notebooks, portfolios, leather bags and briefcases, and other timeless gifts. Prior to this role, Margaret was the Chief Marketing Officer at Levenger. Before joining Levenger, she was Senior Vice President of Consumer Analytics and Intelligence for Chico's, a role to which she was appointed after the acquisition of Boston Proper Brand, where Margaret spent 20 years. During her tenure at Boston Proper, she held roles in merchandising, inventory, and ultimately marketing, where she led the strategic marketing and e-commerce efforts as senior vice president, spearheading its e-commerce transition to a digital-first company. Recognized for her achievements, she was a total retail top woman in cross-channel retailing finalist. That's a mouthful for an, uh, an <laughs> award. <laughs> Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Nice to hear. Yeah, that that's great. You know, we've uh, kind of traveled in in similar circles uh, throughout our respective careers. So uh, I'll be interested to uh, share with our uh, listeners uh, some of that background. We're we're talking today in the middle of January, so we're we're kind of in the in the new year now. We'll talk about your business coming out of holiday. How did uh, the consumer behave for you? The consumer was extremely well behaved and very kind to us during the holiday season. I think, you know, if we've if we've learned anything in the last three years, is it almost four years? Um, there is no real planning anymore in retail. You don't know what to expect. You don't know what to count on. You don't know what's going to come your way. And um, you know, at the end of the day, the customers did show up and decide, you know, to gift Levenger to themselves and to others. And so we were really happy. Uh, with the performance for November and December. And last year, so 22, we had gone through a full systems integration moving off a homegrown platform. And we didn't execute operationally as well, you know, moving to Shopify and, and whatnot. And this year, it just was so seamless. You know, Le Levenger has a legacy of of service as well as quality product. And we we sort of messed up on the service piece last year, despite our best efforts. So this year, 
we were really happy to see it go smoothly and deliver a, a good holiday. I was pleasantly surprised. That's good news. Uh, good to hear. We'll come back to Levenger later, but before um, we, we talk a little bit about your career, Levenger, one store? No stores anymore. The last store was closed in March of 2020. Okay. So right before, uh, I guess, right at COVID, you shut the store. And, and so now digital uh, only. Yes. Yes. But we, we had two stores heading into 2020. One naturally closed. It was a, a shop within shop with Macy's and um, those came up on the other one and who knew what was going to happen. And so we, we closed. So it's been primarily direct to consumer other than that one, you know, the one and a half locations uh, for the last several years. Okay. All right. We'll go back to the uh, format that my listeners have become used to. Uh, and that is to start off these shows with getting kind of the first story from the guest where you grew up. Uh, is there anything in your background that would have suggested the kind of career, the things that you've gotten involved in your career uh, so far? I'd say yes and no. So I was actually raised in London, England, or I was born in Mexico, lived in Venezuela, Spain, and then I was about four when we settled in London. So I was educated fully through the British educational system and then went to university in Boston. So I think if anything in my growing up years or my first story years, um, adaptability, uh, you know, moving around to different countries, especially, you know, United States to England and back again was a big piece of it. My dad was a marketer. He was a sales guy, sales and distribution in the motion picture industry. Uh, so that's why we lived all the places that we lived, wherever his territory was, is where home was. So my brothers and sisters were actually all born in Cuba um, and lived a lot more interesting places than I did. So I think perhaps uh, that marketing and sales background could have fed into it. I'm the only one of my siblings that didn't end up in some form of the entertainment industry, though. The the whole adaptability, retail, uh, that makes a lot of sense, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, a little bit of uh, British accent there came you out go. there. Yes. <laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting. So many of the folks that uh, you know that I've chatted with throughout my career and and on the show um, got their early days in one of the department stores, uh, one of the uh, old time department stores that don't exist anymore. Tell us about that beginning for you. So yes, I went through at the time. Uh, Stearns was that became Macy's. I think a few years later was part of the federated training program, and so upon graduation. You know, that's where the job offer came. I went straight from Boston to Jersey City, New Jersey, and began at the town center, the Newport Center Mall in Jersey City. Still there. It is still there. And Jersey City is a much more desirable area to live now than it was back uh, back when I was there. You start on the floor. And I always think looking back, you know, the training program, you started on the floor and then if you were fortunate, you got promoted to the buying office and that was a whole other learning curve. But, you know, at age 22, straight out of school, who hands somebody that much volume of sales? Um, you get HR immediately, you're managing increasing areas of, you know, departments, depending on, you know, I went everywhere from juniors to China glass and gifts and ended up in housewares. And learned a lot really fast. Inventory, people, customer service, you know, running around working long, long hours and 
with little time off, it was, you know, a tremendous, tremendous experience in, in, in all of the key skills. And I wish there were still programs like that, that you could sort of go around, you know, when you finally, you think you finally get off, off the floor for, and into the buying office. And then that's a whole other learning curve and dynamic of people and training and really, you know, invaluable throughout my whole career, knowing everything from inventory control to service to warehouse operations serves me still and yet today. Yeah, you know, again, the the folks that I, I speak to, they they talk very fondly about those programs and how the breadth of knowledge that they came away, especially for so early in their career. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't have those kinds of programs. So, you know, people come out of college, they have to get that on the job training, but in a much narrower way, it seems. It was an exceptional, exceptional, you know, grounding in, in all things and things. I'm, you know, I, I remain very grateful, grateful for it today. As I said, um, I, I wish somebody would come up with something similar because it really helps you and, and they help you along the way. It's tough. So then I thought to myself, well, who else will do this job other than somebody out of school for this money? <laughs> so <laughs> it's a responsibility. But um, yeah, it's been invaluable. We talked a little bit at, at the top. Um, you know, I spent my career very early on in the catalog business, and seemingly you did as well. So you moved from Stern uh, into was it directly into Mark Foreign Strike? I moved from yep. I moved from Jersey to South Florida, actually with Warner Brothers Studio Stores. Um, I was a store manager, a first assistant store manager, I think they called me. Um, I opened up a store here in the Broward Mall. And after having been sort of on the buying office side of it and then going back to the sales floor, I didn't want to do that anymore. And I answered, a, speaking of things that don't exist anymore, a newspaper ad. I think it was three lines looking for an assistant buyer at Mark Born Strike. So I got in my car and I, I drove up to Boca Raton from Hollywood, Florida and interviewed for a job. And I was hired and I became the assistant buyer for stores for Mark Foreign Strike for menswear. So and I specifically bought ties and belts. <laughs> it's funny, you know, the Mark IV business was in Boca Raton, as you mentioned, and in uh, showing my age here. In 1980, I moved my grandparents into the Century Village in what, and it was new at the time in Boca Raton. It was my first exposure to Boca Raton. They used to take me to Miami Beach when I was a kid. But then much later in life, uh, my wife and I, uh, we own a, a home in Boca Raton. So kind of came full swing, but always watched the Mark IV and Strike business, the Boston proper business, the Levenger business, which uh, also South Florida. Um, so kind of this consistency of a few South Florida direct mail businesses. It was, a, it was amazing. And there was the Mark IV and Strike catalog at the time. Boston proper, I think just starting up, we actually had three catalogs. It was Mark IV and Strike, Charles Keith, and Boston proper. And so at some point I was promoted which meant I was moved to the catalog division and worked as an assistant buyer there and eventually a buyer. And then Boston Proper was sort of taking off um, at the time. And, you know, it's just, just a remarkable experience. And I remember then Levenger was just up the street. Uh, our founder and president, Michael Tiernan, who ran Mark Four and Boston Proper, 
and Steve Levine, obviously one of the co-founders of Levenger, were friends, colleagues. I think they were in YPO together and they had a, a gentleman's agreement. They did not steal talent from one another. Um, so I think talk about full circle, which you mentioned before, for me to end up then 20 or years later. Levenger. <laughs> <laughs> um is pretty incredible and just a, an amazing experience. Again, the catalog, you just learned so much about getting straight into the hands of the consumer. And, and I learned a lot from Michael Tiernan um, in my time there, just about marketing to the customer and delivering service. It was, it was fascinating. And then of course, the divestiture of Mark IV and Charles Keith and becoming just Boston proper put us on a completely different trajectory. Element is an award-winning advertising agency optimizing e-commerce campaigns around profit. In fact, they've helped 13 of their customers get acquired, with one selling for nearly $800 million and one that IPO'd recently. Plus, they were ranked as the 12th fastest growing agency in the world by Adweek. If you're an e-commerce business that needs help scaling your ads profitably, check them out at element.com, spelled E-L-U-M-Y-N-T.com. While you were uh, part of Mark IV and then moving into Boston proper, that was an opportunity for you to move, I guess, solely from a catalog environment to now digital commerce. So talk about, you know, that transition. And, you know, I've told listeners before about the many conversations within these brands about cannibalization and how digital was going to kill the catalog. Um, and we've come to see that that's not quite the case. But what was it like as you were moving into e-commerce? So I, I have a really funny story. I had come back from maternity leave. I had left. Um, I didn't want to be uh, in merchandising because I didn't want to travel. I have a little one. So I went into actually inventory control and buying. I went to my boss at the time and said, I think I can do more you know, what else is there? You know, I'm settled now. I've got a good schedule. And I was told that I had reached my capacity and I wasn't going to go any further. And so that really wasn't, wasn't going to work for me personally, financially, all of the things. And I went to our chief creative officer at the time, Skip Hartzell, and I asked him if he would be a reference for me. And he asked me why I was leaving. And I sort of told the story and <laughs> I kid you not, he said to me, he said, well, have you heard of the internet? So this is 1999, right? There's a few people selling online. And I said, well, you know, I've kind of heard about it. We had, I think, one word processor we all shared as assistant buyers and in inventory control. And he said, well, we are going to launch a website. We're going to sell Boston Proper on a website. And we don't want somebody technical running the site. We believe we need a merchant. And which I thought was, you know, in hindsight, really smart, right? So, you know, I think, and my title became Internet Store Manager for Boston Proper. And that's how I transitioned into digital. And it was, it was sort of, you know, I don't want to say the Wild West or, you know, overused terms, but it did become a little uh, like we were the kids at home and our parents were away and we were, we could do all these these crazy things. And we were experimenting with email and discounts and all of the things that were going on. Our first website, 
was full of content and not really super functional, very pretty. Our second website that I was there to help build couldn't handle any traffic. So even when we dropped a catalog, we couldn't advertise anything. We just hope it would stay up to take a few catalog orders that came in. And third time to charm, uh, the third site that we built ended up really, really being part of the trajectory. And and it it was, it was, oh, the web's going to do this and the web's going to do, we can't sell this and you're going to sell out of that. And you're going to, all of the things that you don't know, you know, when you're afraid, maybe that some of your job's going to go away, or, but nobody knew. And what it ended up being was just a beautiful enhancement. And we all learned together, you know, now there are tips and tricks and everybody has a point of view. And at the time, we were all just trying things. You know, we had an email marketing program. There were no images in those emails. They were, you know, they were text only emails. You know, we did the best we could getting the assets. You know, Boston Proper always had fantastic photography. So putting the assets on the site. And then when it started to look kind of cool and be trending and growing, everybody, then everybody wants to come over to the house where the parents aren't hanging out, right? So uh, lots of cooks in the kitchen and lots of experimenting. I mean, we started the Facebook page. I think I was the first person to join the Boston Proper Facebook along with our creative director at the time, Alon. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun because there were no real rules and we were figuring it out and sort of making it up as we went along. And I do remember crystal clear as day the day we took 250 orders online, <laughs> jumping up and down. There were more web orders than phone orders. And it was a lot of fun. I, I feel so grateful for that question. You know, have you ever heard of the internet and can you help us? And, and, and answering, I can learn. I know, I know how to sell things and I know products. And I think we can figure this out. So I was just very, very fortunate to be in the right place at the perfect time to really launch that portion of my career. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things we do on the show is we try to make sure that we give three key takeaways for people to take back to their personal lives or their business lives. And, you know, this is a great takeaway for folks that, you know, not to be afraid of the unknown, you know, in your professional life. And, and sometimes there's an opportunity to take that leap, take that jump. Um, even though you don't know what's on the, you know, the other side. And, you know, for many of us that had that opportunity to make a move from catalog uh, into digital, uh, we didn't call it digital, we called it the internet, as you say, you know, when it's when it started, digital was kind of, you know, much later, you know, it was a, a great learning for everybody. One of the things that, you know, is interesting, and it still is a challenge today, is, you know, this, I, I call it the A word, you know, this issue of attribution. And, you know, think back to when you started, how were you thinking about the dollars that you were spending on catalogs? And, you know, the, the fact was the catalogs were driving the traffic to the web. There wasn't email back then. Uh, maybe there was a little bit of Yahoo, but that wasn't doing anything either. It was really the catalog, right? It was really the catalog. I think we had, of course, we, we did have email. We, we launched that. And then I think we, if I'm not mistaken, we did some ads on AOL, which was the, the hub at the time right, for content. We didn't. It, we looked at channel orders. So it was phone orders and then how many orders came in on the web and they were driven by the catalog. The assumption and to be, let's be very, very honest, 
in a lot of places and, and still in many places, the catalog gets a lot of the credit for the orders that go on. So you keep a mailing catalogs, right? Yeah, we didn't even talk about attribution. Attribution, multi-channel, all of those cool words that came along, you know, as the business grew. We we just saw all boats rise. And then you don't pay attention when your business is growing. You don't really look into all the places you're spending the money to do it. You're just saying everything is working. And so you just keep doing it. I mean, it was a that third website when we actually got functional. I think our business grew, the e-commerce, digital internet grew almost 70% that year. I mean, 70% of not a lot is, but it was, it became meaningful. Yeah. And it was it's just so much fun, right? That's just makes makes everything worthwhile. And not having a site used to worry about it crashing all the time, all the time. Yeah, it's amazing how you know we've come from where we felt like retailers needed to be technology companies to some degree, right? And you were taking you know enterprise IT executives who you know were mainframe focused, didn't really understand uh, the internet because it was new, didn't understand that technology, and you know at the end of the day we were moving away from creating great product and and creative and having to focus on technology to a large degree that's been taken away depending you know about where you you do your site you mentioned shopify it's you know shopify's got its issues like all platforms but you know it's no longer having to be uh, knee deep in technology quite the way you did at the beginning i'm not in it i'm not good at it i mean i know marketing technology i've learned from friends and colleagues and many proposals along the way but what I do know is how to take care of the customer and create great product and tell the story about that product. And that's what I do. I don't want to be involved in the other things. That's not what I was educated in and I'm not good at it. Well, you were at uh, Boston Property. You guys were acquired by Chico's. How does a transition like that go? You're an executive uh, in a company. You're acquired. How does it feel? That was another one of those incredible learning experiences. And I know you've spoken with and, and are friends with Cheryl Clark, who was our CEO and president at Boston Proper when, when Michael stepped down and had decided to be the chair of the board. The whole experience of just selling the company was almost like another federated training program. You know, you really learn, you really get through your paces and, and all the interviews and sort of the dating Um the transition itself, you're on such a high, right? It was such an amazing accomplishment for the entire team, merchandising, everybody in the distributions, everybody who had been at Boston Proper for so many years. And we were talking about long-term employees, 20, you know, I was 17, 18 years, folks in our distribution center, 20 years. We were all just so, so, so excited. You know, it was a big change. There all of a sudden, you have an entire HR team to take care of you, right? You're, you're talking about it multi-billion dollar company at the time and there are just so many people and so many ins and outs just navigating that from being our small team of 70 people that was very close-knit team for the most part had been through this amazing trajectory it was a little blinding right it was just overwhelming because what we ended up doing after the transitions was I think the integration ended up being 26 systems that we migrated to to become part of the Chico's FAS systems. And simultaneously, we were going on a retail, Chico's knows retail, right? They know how to open stores. And so 
there was a team starting to open stores. I don't, I don't remember how many I got to. There was, it was a whirlwind. It was a complete, it was a complete whirlwind after, you know, you come down off that high and, and still trying to then retain the, the heart and soul of the brand that you sold and keep its integrity. And I think, um, and Cheryl would say the same thing, you know, we lost our way there a little bit because all, all of a sudden, you know, your customer so very well, and you know, your product so well, and you winning. There, there's a lot of input, right? Again, it becomes sort of like the internet taking off, right? There's a lot of feedback all of a sudden on everything you're doing and a lot of scrutiny. And, and we were a, a really scrappy, I think our direct business, and don't quote me, but I think at the time our direct business was bigger, our internet business was bigger. And I wish, you know, still to this day that maybe we could have, the other brands could have learned something from our digital business. But, you know, it, it all worked out in the end. But it was it was a whirlwind. How, how's that for a word? Yeah, no, that, that's good. In your role as part of this um, whirlwind, um, there became this shared resource model within the organization, and you were prominent in that. It had quite a lot of people reporting to you. So was that a, a challenge for you, you know, taking on a, a large team? It was. I think um, about a year after we were acquired, I was invited um, and offered to join the the FAS team. So I actually moved from the East Coast of Florida to the West Coast and became um, part of FAS. So I still had, I was still helping with the marketing at Boston Proper until they, you know, because then they needed to find a head of marketing. Yes, three, all, now you have four brands and then three, four brands, four brand presidents, an enormous team that was primarily CRM. We became analytics and intelligence over the years as the analytics teams kind of all coalesced. Um, how do you, I mean, it does, it's an enormous number. I think that we have that many people at Levenger. The folks that reported to me were absolutely incredible. I mean, they were warm and welcoming. I was definitely a fish out of water in that huge environment. And if it wasn't for, you know, I can, I can think of them today, you know, showing me the ropes, um, making sure I didn't fall in any holes. And it was they who really helped bring that team together. But it was a lot of collaboration. And I spent the big campus, she goes, I spent a lot of time walking around getting to know people. That's how I managed 67 people. And I talk, I, you know, I talk to them all the time. Um, and I'm still fortunate to, you know, both my direct reports, peers, um, people I reported to that count among friends. It was an incredible experience. Yeah, you know, and that's um, you know another interesting fact, especially you know early people that are earlier in their careers, ones that have started during COVID. You know, there's so much you can do remotely, but at the end of the day, still being able to pick yourself up from your desk in an office and walk next door, or have those you know cliched conversations at the uh, the water cooler or at the lunch table or whatever, you can't replace those kinds of uh, involvement. No, and I think about that a lot. Um, my daughter actually works remote, and I think about the friendships and things I've learned, and managerial skills, and and just working skills that I learned just from being in that environment. And I wonder about a generation of people who are missing out on on that piece, right? Just people you like, people you don't like, people you you know you can learn from or not. And I think you can do those things via Zoom, but. I'm a people person, so I need to sit and have a conversation and look somebody in the eye and, and talk to them. And so um, very, very important piece of, of how I, I work with people and how I lead people. 
Thriving brands today have one thing in common. They make it a priority to understand their customers. Imperity uses AI to unify customer data and help businesses know exactly who their customers are and what they care about most. Find new customers, grow loyalty, get better return on ad spend, and manage privacy compliance. An accurate, unified customer data foundation connected with the teams and tools that need it makes everything you do with customer data work better. Build your strategy on Amperity, the platform for customer data. Learn more at Amperity.com. You had a, a moment in time like I have uh, in my career consulting. Um, actually, it was a, a fairly uh, long period, six plus years, uh, I guess, of, of consulting, I think. Was it, it that was long? Actually only, it was only, a, I, I think it stayed. I was consulting also while I was working when I started here, but pure consulting about four or five months. And that was after I left Chico's, I had decided to sort of take a break just reassess. It was, you know, a big year. I was turning 50. My daughter was leaving home, you know, going through all of the the things. And, and I hadn't taken any time off in my entire, since the day I graduated college. And after, I think maybe three weeks, I thought, well, I better do something, maybe a month. And a very good friend of mine suggested sort of that you hang your shingle and, and um, some folks found me on LinkedIn and a very good friend and mentor Chris Paradise. Ah, yes. Uh, yeah, of course. Sure, Chris. He gave me a call and said, well, you're on the market. You know, I have a project. So I was able to go in and, and work with uh, PM Digital at that time um, with some clients. And it was nice to sit on the other side of that table and, and learn that, you know, strategic planning and sort of dip in and out of different projects. I loved it. I loved it. I got to do that. I got to work with Ashley Sheets at, at home for a little while. Yeah, it was a really nice way to to ease back in. Oh, that's great. And then Levenger. So <laughs> I mentioned, you know, I used to go to the store there. I, I was always intrigued by the pens and all kinds of briefcases and the quality of the product, you know, in the store. So talk about the business, what it is today um, and how it's, you know, how you've morphed, uh, you know, direct to consumer catalog and uh, online. It is still all of those things. I am so proud to say those amazing, beautiful pens, the Circa notebook system, the stationery. When I was approached for the job at Levenger, of course, I, I knew of Levenger. You know, growing up in England, I was actually taught to handwrite with a fountain pen in calligraphy. That's how at age five or six, they taught us to write. And still to this day, before Levenger used a fountain pen, you know, people often comment on my handwriting. And so I thought, well, this is a nice fit. And, and after being with a publicly held company that was of the scale that it was, and I was fortunate enough to report to the CEO at Chico's. I, I liked being back in a family-owned business. So the Levines still own the business. As co-founders, they're involved from a product suggestion. You know, Steve Levine will, will he calls it, you know, some shameless commerce. He will write blogs for us and, and be involved in that way. But the product line has stayed really true to itself. I would say when I arrived here, we were selling some things that sort of weren't ours to do as I saw it, you know, those rugs and wall, you know, pictures and this and that. And when I became CEO, I we did a, a real exercise about what is ours to do. And we honed in on 
the original traditional Le Levenger goods and looked through the archives and, and listened to, you know, went through a lot of customer letters about why did you discontinue this? Where's that? I mean, I'm sure they were all, these things all happened for good reason, but we had a really nice surge bringing back what we call our heritage collection. Heritage, yeah. I knew I knew you were going to use that <laughs> word. I don't know why it was on the tip of my tongue. Yep. And so our product development, I think, for the first year, and actually worked out because it was during during COVID, and and the team couldn't travel. Our product development came out of our file cabinets, and it was a, a smashing success. And really, just went true to our roots and said, "Other people can do this. We don't need to do this, but we still make." you know, the affordable luxury pen and our papers, 100 GSM and things that you can't find anywhere else, the carousel bookcase and book weights. And, you know, the old tagline, if you remember, was tools for serious readers, tools for, you know, writers, readers, thinkers, dreamers, doers is our, is how we talk about it now. And we, we just went back to being true to those things that you, that you loved when you went in the store, you know, the the leather that lasts for 20 plus years, you know, paper, you know, notebooks that you don't throw away, you can reorganize and rearrange, you know, pens you only need a refill for, you don't have to put the whole thing in a landfill and, and beautiful occasional furniture, office furniture in our no room collection. I mean, it's really, this job is easy when the product is so spectacular and the quality is, you know, there, there's two things that we've never given up and it's quality and there's a price that comes with that, obviously and our service. And so, you know, the call center is the other thing that uh, our customer care team actually was one of the first things I did. I brought it back here to Delray Beach. We all answer the phones at Christmas time and whenever else they get busy. You know, that foundation is still very strong 30 as we head into year 38. Yeah, that's great stuff. And and from a marketing mix perspective, um, obviously digital, but how important and how significant of a of a role is paper in the business? So paper has been very, you know, there were I think we were mailing maybe 18 catalogs a year when I got here. Um, we paired that back, I mean, partially because our assortment, you know, different than an apparel retailer, we're not putting a new collection out every single month. Um, so we've paired that back a bit, but digital has become more important with email being extremely important, you know, and, and we can't have this conversation without talking about the extraordinary cost of the catalog. So what was once a very efficient revenue generating and cost efficient, profitable mechanism, you know, has become less so just because of the price of paper and the price of postage. And so we are now being very thoughtful about the formats we put in the mail. Uh, we're playing a lot with that because we know we still need to be in the mail or we want to be in the mail. It's not financially feasible to be 68 pages in the mail every four weeks for us. And we can, we're generating a lot of new customers and revenue via other channels and alternatives. So it's a constant, constant balance. Yeah, same story I hear from, you know, lots of uh, different companies struggling, uh, you know, knowing that paper uh, has a place for their business, but, you know, not being able to do, you know, full catalogs uh, from an, an acquisition perspective. So totally uh, get that. H how do you think that you will progress there? I mean, will you ultimately, do you think there's always going to be some paper or might there be a, a moment in time in the not too distant future where you really have to, you know, pull back on paper and, and go much more aggressively digitally. 
We have been fair. This year will be fairly aggressive with many fewer, you know, catalogs, but still some form of mailer. But, you know, I don't know. I, I, I at certain times of year, there's something to be said for it. Of course, Christmas and the holidays is a big time. You know, you think about the old sort of the Sears wish book that, or the even the Neiman's wish book that used to come out as once a year. I don't, I don't know. It's really going to depend on the market. It's gonna, the numbers will tell us, the, the analytics will tell us what we need to do. You know, we're making some changes and I just had a conversation and somebody said, well, are you nervous about making that big a change? And I said, well, no, because the numbers are sort of, guiding us there and we're still acquiring customers the business is still healthy i'm a believer coming out of the direct mail space in testing testing and testing again so we test a lot and try and make the best informed decision that we can but if pricing you know and the postage keeps going up it's it's not feasible when there's other other marketing vehicles that you can that are more profitable that you can invest your dollar in so Right. Like everybody else, I'm in the same boat. Well, look, we're coming down to the end of the show. Interesting uh, uh, business, and you've had an amazing career, so congratulations. Uh, we do a uh, two-minute drill here. Seven questions, one-word answer. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. Thanks for All having right. me. Back. Yeah, my pleasure. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Anthropology. A favorite app on your phone? Audible. Last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Ann Taylor Loft. Something that you're not good at but wish that you are? Playing guitar. A charitable organization that you're passionate about? The West Palm Beach Library Foundation. If you had one superpower, what would it be? To stop time. And other than family, what's your most prized possession? My mother's wristwatch that I wear every day. Oh, that's a nice one. Uh, where can people reach out to you on social media if they'd like to connect? They can find me at LinkedIn, on LinkedIn, of course, and Levenger Company on Instagram or MM, actually. Okay, great. Thank you for the great insights. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'm glad that we were able to connect. Thank you for making the time. Me too. Thank you so much. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Margaret Moraski for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, adaptability. Two shows in a row now. We have a guest that's done a lot of international travel throughout their careers. And in Margaret's case, she was born outside the U.S. She speaks about how this has helped her understand other cultures, and it helped formulate an ability to change within companies and going from one organization to another. Embrace this kind of change. It can really set you apart from your peers. And number two, don't be afraid of the unknown. When a company peer asked Margaret whether she knew what the internet was, that became a new path for her career. She could have stayed and taken the comfortable approach, but she embraced the change and the newness of the internet. You can do the same thing when opportunities present themselves. And number three, retailers have gone way past needing to be technology companies. When the web became prominent, many retailers and brands fell prey to the shiny object syndrome and added lots of bells and whistles to their sites that didn't really pay off. As we've progressed, while technology is certainly critical for a well-functioning business, providing great product and great customer service are the most important components to a successful brand. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, 
Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Thank <laughs> you.